Good morning. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Everlasting life and light he freely gives. That's the message of the gospel. During our evening services, we've been working our way through the book of Luke. And we are in chapter 19. From a time frame standpoint, if you're thinking where Jesus is in this time, this is about, oh, a few days before the triumphal entry. In fact, it's probably about a week and a half to two weeks before he would have been crucified. That's where we're picking up here in Luke chapter 19. In Luke 18, Jesus heals a blind man, a man who is very persistent, calling after Jesus, yelling over a crowd, Son of David, have mercy on me. This man who was blind was a Jew, and he knew his Old Testament prophecy. Not only did he know it, he agreed that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so he called out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus healed him. He gave him eyes that worked. And then, after that, Jesus, still walking through Jericho, making his way to Jerusalem, performed another miracle. But this miracle wasn't so much a physical miracle, but it was a miracle. He changed the heart of a tax collector. A man that perhaps many of you have sang about when you were in Sunday school or junior church. That wee little man who climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, You come down. When I sang that as a kid, I always did it in a really scolding way. You know, there's actually war for that. In the Greek, they were imperatives. Jesus didn't say, hey, Zacchaeus, if you have some room, you know, can I come over? No, he said, Zacchaeus, come down, and then I'm going to your house. Now, this was an honor, especially for a man like Zacchaeus, who, frankly, was an easy target to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be hated. He patted his pockets with the money of his countrymen working for that anathema, Rome. But he was also a short man, and he had to climb up into a tree to see Jesus of Nazareth walking by. What was the miracle? Well, the miracle was that God changed his heart, and that's the miracle that takes place any time a person comes to Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's a miracle. Paul says that when we don't know Christ, we're spiritually dead. And yet, when we come to Christ, when he draws us, he actually changes us and gives us spiritual, spiritual life. He changes someone who's spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. That's a miracle. And that's what happened to Zacchaeus. And so, in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19, there's some real excitement in the crowd. This crowd that's walking through Jericho. They're following after Jesus. And in verse 11... They're listening to Jesus, and they're anticipating something to take place. 
verse 11, it says, While they, this is the crowd, were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So we learn a little bit about this crowd. These were Jews. It was Israel. But they also were familiar with their Old Testaments too. They were seeing miracles that were predicted in the Old Testament. They were seeing people like Zacchaeus become followers of Jesus Christ. Yet there was a problem. The problem was that the leadership of Israel and many of the people of Israel, they were admirers, but they weren't true disciples. They weren't true followers of Jesus. You see, Jesus had come in verse 10 to seek and to save that which was lost. His being there had more to do with saving souls from their sin than overthrowing a Roman government. And you see, the people here anticipated a king who would help them to break off the shackles of oppression. That's what they wanted. What Jesus was offering was something different. To be sure, he was the king and is the king. And to be sure, he will reign on this earth. But there would be a time in between now and then, which is why Jesus gives this parable. Verse 11, we just read. He recognized the king, that they anticipated the kingdom of God was going to appear. And so before he walks into Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, before he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey... He gives this parable. So let's read this together. Verse 12. So Jesus said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas. That's about, at least the note in my Bible, it says about a hundred days wages. So about three months pay. Gave them ten mina, gave these ten slaves a mina each and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens, not the slaves, citizens, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared and saying, master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, Here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. 
Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. We need God's help to understand not just what this passage means, but we need God's help to live what it says and to put into practice what God would have us change in our lives. So let's ask God for that help before we go any further. God, we thank you for your word, which never returns empty. It always accomplishes what you will. Lord, there are people here who you have ordained to be here to hear this. Lord, may your word be just that, your word. And Lord, may it be clear. May the Holy Spirit work in hearts so that we, as Christians, might become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are any who, is not, who are not saved, that today may be the day that they come to Christ, that they make Jesus their Lord and Savior. Regardless, Lord, may you be given as much glory as you deserve, as we can give. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to walk through this parable. Just walk right through it. And then at the end, I'm going to make two points of application. If you're a note taker, I apologize. Um, you'll have like two points that you'll write down and maybe some other ancillary details. Um, that's not all I want you to get. I mean, this is God's word, but if you like to take notes, there's really two primary points that I'll give at the end. Okay. As I said before, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He's barely two weeks away from being crucified. Things are becoming a fevered pitch. And he gives a parable that explains that there's going to be a delay. Now, these people in Jericho, when they heard this parable, their minds would have been drawn to an event that took place not too long ago by their leader. His name was Archelaus. Now, Archelaus was a Jewish leader that had been appointed by Rome. And the way that Archelaus was put into power was very similar to this parable. In other words, he went to Rome to be given his kingship. There was a constituency that followed after him telling Rome, no, 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 we don't want him. And so Rome made this happy agreement that made nobody happy. So you had the people miserable, and you had Archelaus given a little bit less than what he was anticipating. But when these people heard this parable, they would have thought, oh, this sounds an awful lot like a situation here. But that's where the comparison ends. Because as we see here, the nobleman who was to be made king represents Jesus uh, of Nazareth, the one who was to be made king. The one who would be king was to be made king and then return as king. Those who believed in him would own him as king. And those who rejected him, as we see, would be punished. The intention of this parable was to prepare the listeners, if they really believed Jesus to be the Son of Man, 
the prophesied king of the Old Testament, then they are to be stewards of the time between now and when the king comes. You see, in verse 10, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. The Jewish listener would have thought back to a passage in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. The prophesied Messiah was the Son of Man. And so, in their minds, there would have been dots connected. Aha! The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. This is the one prophesied about. They were believing. He's going to be king. They're going to overthrow Rome. Here it comes. And Jesus says, not yet. There are things that need to be done. And in the meantime, you are going to be given a stewardship. So this parable of the minas. You know, there's several parts to this parable that are important that we identify. First of all, there, are, there is the nobleman, which we already identified. That's Jesus. And then there are these ten slaves in verse 13. He called ten of his slaves. And these slaves were given ten minas. Who are these slaves? Well, these slaves would have been those who were following him. Those who agreed with him. Those who we're celebrating those who are anticipating this kingdom. And the minas represent the stewardship of the message of the gospel. That they had been given something that they were to steward while the king was away. Those minas then, that's the gospel. What would they do with it? Now, you'll notice in verse 14 but his citizens. Who are they? Well, that would have been national Israel, especially Jewish leadership, which hated Jesus and was plotting to kill him. His citizens hated him. They did not want him to be king. How can a king be made a king when his citizens don't want him to be king? And so as the storyline goes, the nobleman gives these servants a mina. Do something with it. Steward it. Verse, um, uh, verse 15. He ordered that these slaves to whom he'd given the money be called to him that they might know what business they had done. They were called to do business with this. So we see two servants. Now, these two servants saw a game. If you notice what they say and what Jesus says, it's instructive as to how things came about. Jesus was approached by the first servant and says, your mina has made ten minas more. And what does the nobleman say? The nobleman says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, his response to servant one and servant two actually contradict servant number three's assessment of them. Remember servant number three? Down in verse 21, servant number three, who basically just wrapped his mind in a handkerchief, look how he describes the nobleman. He says, I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. I don't know, but the way that the nobleman responded to servant one and servant two, it doesn't look like that at all. That's really important that we understand that in light of application, which we'll get to in a moment. That this nobleman responded with lavish praise 
and great reward to the man who earned 10 minus 10 cities to, to, to rule over. The man who made five minus, five cities to rule over. Now, what do we know about these servants? Well, notice in verse 16. Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. Verse 18. Your mina, master, has made five minas more. Notice the disposition of these servants. Your mina has made ten minas. Your mina has made five minas. They did not brag about their resourcefulness. They did not say, look what I did. They said, look what happened. In essence, they were giving credit to the nobleman. Why is that key? Because I see this parable and the response of the three servants as giving an accurate picture of the Christian life. What do I mean? Well, the two faithful servants had a disposition to where they gave credit to God's providence and not their own ingenuity. But they did wisely invest and work hard to bring about an increase. I mean, if they didn't do anything, what was going to happen? Well... What happened with the third servant? Wrap it up in a handkerchief. Got your mina. There's no increase. So to be sure, there was God's providence, but to be sure, there was also effort. You know, in the past several months, Pastor Tim has mentioned on multiple occasions that our faith in Jesus Christ, our salvation, our Christian life, is not performance-based. You may have heard him say that, performance-based, or performance-driven. In that, in order to somehow be saved, we must do certain things to earn that salvation or to perhaps keep from slipping back into an unsaved state. No, the basis of our faith is found in Jesus Christ and our identity in him and what has been done on our behalf. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says not of works, lest any man should brag. Yet, while we reject a performance-based faith, we must agree that true saving faith will be a faith that performs. Not performance like put on a show, but it will be an active faith. This is what's at the heart of James in chapter 2 of his epistle. That a faith without works is a dead faith. There is no such thing as an investment in a mina and a return with nothing put into it. So if I could just encourage you, as you hear instruction, admonition, exhortation, about our responsibility to obey. Please know that these exhortations are in light of the natural tendency that is ours to be like that third servant. And that's to sit and do nothing. How easy it is to know the truth and then to just settle in like someone settling into retirement. In proper balance with proper truth from God's word, 
We need to be reminded what we have been entrusted with and our responsibility with that until the king returns. And so when you hear exhortations to obey, that's not somehow to add to the faith that's been given to you. No, it's to invest in what's been given to you. And that is what's so sad about the second portion of this parable. The third servant who did nothing with his mina. He gained nothing and he was left with nothing. The nobleman took that mina away and gave it to the one who had ten. Now, I want to just take a little bit of time to give two different explanations on this second section. Okay? And here's why. Because depending on who you read, this third servant is either a believer or he's an unbeliever. And I want to lay out why this matters. I mean, you think, okay, so what's the big deal? I think it matters. There are some that would say this actually there's a case that can be made for this being a true believer. Like, who this person represents. Does he represent a Christian? I think a case can be made. How so? Well, he was entrusted with the gospel. He got the same thing that the other servants got. And when we look at the end of Luke, the end of this parable, you notice that this mina was taken away from him, but he wasn't judged the same way that the other citizens were the citizens that said we we don't want him to be our king he wasn't judged the same way and if you look in first corinthians chapter three let's turn there i think we can see a similar circumstance playing out first corinthians three We're going to start in verse 11, and really I want us to, our, our point of emphasis to be in verses 14 and 15, okay? But let's start in verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, this is a day of judgment, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. But verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there's going to be a Christian who has very little to show for his Christian life. And in the judgment, he will stand before the Lord, and he will, as verse 15 says, he will be saved. Yet, his investment was wood, hay, stubble. Things that did not persevere or last. So this servant who didn't invest his mina, maybe this was a believer. Maybe, though, he was to represent an unbeliever. Going back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. 
If you look at verse 20, the translation I use starts off with another came. Now that word another is pretty significant in this because in the original language, this word another is the Greek word heteros or hetero. That may sound familiar. You hear it with prefixes, with other, other words. It just means another of a different kind. I think there's a grammatical case that could be made that this was another servant of a different kind. Not only that, he flagrantly disregarded the orders of his master. His master told him to invest. He didn't invest. Not only that, the way that he looked at his master was not in agreement with reality. He assumed the worst of his master. Calls him wicked, calls him worthless. He's saying, okay, so what does this person look like? Well, I think we could see in other passages of Scripture what this servant may look like. Let's look at the Gospel of John. Let's look at John. And we're going to start in verse 8. John chapter 8. What did I say? I missed... I heard rumbling. Oh, I said verse 8, John, verse... Oh, there's, there's 21 chapters to choose from. I mean, verse 8, you know, come on. My bad. I'm sorry. John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 26. This is Jesus talking. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They, the people, did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Hooray! Right? Hooray! Let's keep reading. Verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. 
For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. I mean, imagine that in light of verse 30. Look at verse 44. It gets better. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father, desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word and he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not, 50 yet, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In the span of 29 to 30 verses, you have people professing belief, eager to follow, then picking up stones, trying to kill what does this have to do with the parable of the miners? Well, I believe that the better interpretation of who that third servant is is the unbeliever. One who was entrusted with the gospel. One who was given the opportunity to invest. Was instructed that he should or she should invest and didn't. So what? So what? Note takers, here's the two points. Okay. What, you, what should we get from this? Number one, severe judgment awaits you if you reject Jesus Christ. Severe judgment awaits you if you reject Jesus Christ. Going back to Luke chapter 19. We see in verse 26, Jesus says, I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. That's a startling ending to a par parable, isn't it? Yet, 
earlier in this same book, in Luke chapter 12, we read of a similar parable of Jesus where he describes the outcome of those who simply dilly-dally while awaiting the return of the king. They face that same judgment. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, we see the warning given to the Hebrews about that it is a terrifying thing, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Severe judgment awaits you if you reject Jesus Christ. This is not a popular message, but I fear that the reason why it's not popular isn't because there is, it's lacking when it, when it comes to proof, or it's lacking when it comes to looking at the scripture, or somehow it's lacking because of its reason. No, I think it's not popular, it's just because it's not liked. You must not reject this word simply because you do not like it. And if I could plead with those who are part of this church, Jesus is giving a parable to people who knew the Old Testament. He was giving a parable not to a group of Gentiles, like Paul did at Mars Hill. No, he was speaking to national Israel. He was speaking to those who were even following along. Their rejection wasn't an intellectual rejection. It was a practical rejection. It wasn't as if they didn't somehow agree with things. It was just that when they were pressed, they revealed what exactly it was they really believed. And I have to ask, does your life reflect a faithful stewardship of the gospel that has been entrusted to you. Professing believer, you may have your Christian education. You may have your years and years and years of faithful attendance. But does your life demonstrate the entrusting of the gospel? I know all these facts. God, when you stand before the Lord... You could show him your degrees. You could show him the awards that you won for memorizing Bible verses. You could show him your achievements here on earth, how straight the lines are in your lawn, how nicely kept your garage is, how educated your adult children are, how successful they've become. But what are you doing with what has been entrusted to you, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ? These people hated that message. And when they were confronted about it, they didn't respond with grief. They responded with anger. If you're, if someone spiritually close to you challenged you, said, are you truly born again? And they love you, and they have a context. And, and theirs isn't just a flippant, like they've seen you have a, a, a bad day. But they genuinely were burned for your soul. Would that make you angry? Or would that break your heart? Praise God that someone would love you enough to ask you this side of heaven. As I read this, 
I have to ask myself the same question. I mean, the body count of Christian ministers who are walking away from the faith, who are showing their true colors, only increases. Severe judgment awaits you if you reject Jesus Christ. Not just the intellect, but in your life. But let's end on the positive. Because a lavish reward awaits you if you are faithful in your stewardship. A lavish reward awaits you if you are faithful in your stewardship. Sure, the servants were told to steward what they had been given, but they had no clue that their master would reward them the way that he did. In fact, even the bystanders were shocked at how lavish the reward would be. Wait a second, that guy has ten minus already. You're giving him another one? Hmm? He's the nobleman. He's the king. And he can reward exactly how he wants to. This makes me think of, of the parable, and I believe it's Matthew chapter 20, the, the landowner who hired out servants throughout the day. And he hires someone at the beginning of the day, and then three hours later he hires the next one at 9 a.m., then hires another one at noon, and then another one at 3, and then another one at 5 p.m. And they all work varying numbers of hours during the day. Right? It's Matthew 20. And what does the, what does the landowner do? He gives the same reward to the guy who worked one hour as he did the guy who worked 12 hours. Now, the guy who worked 12 hours, mind you, agreed. This was a day's wage. And you read it, and you're like, man, that's kind of unfair. I mean, that guy worked 12 hours, and he got the same amount as the guy with one hour. But how we ought to think, and how Jesus would have us think, is look at how generous and lavish our Savior is for someone who put in one hour. That's not commending sloth. It's promoting what kind of a God we serve and how lavish he will reward us. We know that our master will lavishly reward those who faithfully serve the Lord out of love for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 quotes the Old Testament by saying, just as it is, just as it is written... Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man. These things, so mysterious, all that God has prepared for those who love us or love him. And it gets better. There's a German theologian. I'm going to do my best to pronounce his name. Those of you who know German, my apologies. His name is Helmut Tilleke. And he says this about this passage. The greatest blessing in this parable is the relationship that the reward brought. By being in charge of these cities, the servants would be closest to him and thus will always have access to him and be able to speak to him and tarry in his presence at all times. Their reward is that in the end, the Lord will receive them with honors, that they will be privileged to speak and to live with Jesus forever. For heaven does not consist in what we shall receive, whether this be white robes or heavenly crowns or ambrosia or nectar, but rather in what we shall become, namely companions of the king. What grace is this? 
1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. And John says, and that is what we are. And, you know, let's just speak as human beings. How could the rewards given to the two servants not be incentive to wisely invest in eternal things? I mean, Jesus made it a point to remind the followers of how richly they were to be rewarded. True, we serve out of love. And true, we cannot fathom what scope that reward would be. But Jesus knows that reward helps to provide when we persevere, or for when we persevere. It's okay to have this reward help to motivate us as we persevere in the faith. Souls, either believing or unbelieving, you have been given something that far outweighs anything on earth. Jesus gave his life for you God created you in his image. And he created you for his glory. Yet because of our sin, we fell short of that glory, both in our action and in our heart. I sin because I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner, and so I sin. But God didn't leave us there. He sent his only unique son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And he took the punishment that we read of at the end of this parable. He took that on himself for you. And he offers you a gift, one that you could not earn, even if you had a thousand lifetimes. And he offered it freely, never to keep the receipt and return it if it doesn't work out the way he planned. It's given and given permanently. That's for you. He died, he rose again, and he is coming back. Are you living as if he is coming back? Are you stewarding what has been given to you? Not because my words are somehow special, but these words will echo through your mind for eternity, either in rejoicing of the reality of being with him forever or in damnation and being in torment forever. What are you doing with the time and the stewardship that God has given you? Are you born again? And if you are, will you continue to persevere as you steward that gift? The king is coming, and it will be a wonderful day. But for some, and I hope not some of you, it will be a day of judgment. Turn from your sin. Turn from your culture of Christianity, if that's what it is. And make Jesus your king. Let's pray. Lord God,
This is a wonderful message, but it's a sober message. Jesus looking out at the crowds, knowing that those people who thought that he was going to be establishing his kingdom and were so excited about it would in short turn be yelling crucify him. What love we have in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray today, if there's any here who as they're listening to this, they see themselves because the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes, they see themselves as not being born again. Would today be the day that they trust in Christ? That they make Him the Lord of their life? Would they talk to someone? Would put it on their heart? God, for those who do know Christ, and I, I pray and, and rejoice with so many faces that I see, that I've seen the fruit, and we all see the fruit, and we see the perseverance, and we see the love for you, and we rejoice in that. Then, Lord, may we continue to persevere and be reminded that you will reward lavishly. You are that good of a God. And the difficulties and the struggles that we now face, Lord, they will pale in comparison to what is to come. And Lord, I know in this congregation there are difficulties, there are struggles, there are hardships that go deep. But your grace is far greater and you are so worth it. Help us to live that way. Thank you for being so patient. In your son Jesus' name I pray, amen.